Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. 13 days until November 3rd, Rick. One day until the next and final presidential debate. A debate I have to candidly admit to you I did not think was actually going to happen and I probably won't believe is going to happen uh, until it starts. But but here we are. Um, and I, I just thought that, uh, and by the way, we have a great guest coming up. We're going to be talking to uh, General H.R. McMaster, a uh, very thoughtful uh, guy with a distinguished military uh, career who also happened to serve as uh, President Trump's second national security advisor. We'll be talking to him shortly. But I, but I, Rick, I mean, you're you're a student of politics. Um, you know the stuff as well as anybody. You know what closing arguments are all about. Um, it has uh, been interesting to me to watch the president make his closing case. Uh, I would have thought maybe he would have done something about its stewardship of the economy, maybe, you know, play up uh, his vision for a second term. But what I have noticed here is the president has gone hard at a couple of, well, a few people I really wouldn't have thought he would have gone after. Uh, one, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, we'll, I want to play a little bit of, of, of that back and forth because there has been a back and forth uh, to that. Uh, also, uh, he's apparently going after Leslie Stahl and CBS in 60 Minutes. He's he's gone hard at Savannah Guthrie and Kristen Welker at NBC. He said a couple things about ABC, um, but not as much, maybe because of the ratings of our town hall with uh, Joe Biden. Um, but uh, th- th- this is a this is a rather strange uh, closing set of arguments. And, and and it is not the way that the campaign staff has scripted it. The campaign staff's been telling telling us for weeks. Let's you know the American people are t- dialed into Amy Coney Barrett and the Supreme Court confirmations. They're dialed into the um, the economy as the overriding issue. They're dialed into uh, alleged corruption um, uh, by the Biden family. Those are the things that they want to be talking about. The things though that President Trump is talking about are different, and it's not. In some cases, they make no sense. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think there's really a good political explanation for picking a fight with with Dr. Fauci at this stage of the campaign, given where the, the given where the public polling numbers are for both of those men. But there is kind of a, a bedrock reliance that the president has about what animates his base, his people, and those rallies that he views as his own focus groups and his own gauge of where America is at any given moment are eating it up. So the only way to me to describe it is that Trump uh, will will continue to uh, to run the way he always has, uh, and that is in in listening to and stoking uh, the, the anxieties and the fears and the, the rallying cries of a very loyal base. So it, it, there's also one other thing before we get to the, the Fauci back and forth. Um, the, the 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 money the money angle now look I've covered a lot of campaigns including one four years ago where the candidate with the most money does not win um, those are exceptions by the way to to uh, uh, to, to the usual uh, trend um, but you know the, the Trump campaign raised and if you combine it with the the super PACs the party all the kind of pro Trump uh, money out there they raised like what like a billion and a half dollars and they're going into the final two weeks with like on fumes uh yeah less than 200 million of that left yeah total this and is everything no 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 i mean the total, campaign, all much, of the, that's right much much less than that's that. right um now look hillary 
couldn't outspend him about two to one all told. And but here we are again, an incumbent president uh, who raised plenty of money, but is 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 facing a, 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 a final stretch where they're making tough decisions about uh, reducing ad buys and uh, you know conserving resources. It's bizarre. What happened there? Do you remember the Super Bowl, John? The, the, the Super Bowl was in yeah. was in January, maybe early February. Um, the, yeah. It was the, the Democratic primaries were hot. There were no Republican primaries. President Trump dropped a ten million dollar ad buy on the Super Bowl. It was pretty. Fast good ad. forward to the world. Yeah, it was very good. Ad, very good. Um, the ad that 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 hit hit TVs this cycle or that that's relevant for the general election came one of the World it's Series. World Joe Series Biden now, had a sixty right? second yeah. ad. World Series. Yeah. It's the World Series. It's the World Series and Sam Elliott's voice um, intoning uh, for, for Joe Biden. There is so much we can do if we choose to take on problems and not each other and choose a president who brings out our best. Joe Biden doesn't need... It was pretty good. Big Lebowski, baby. Yeah. Kind of a morning in America type of ad. And it is, it, it, look, I, I don't think Donald Trump wins or loses because of money. I, I don't, I'm, I know that's going to be some of the analysis around this, but the fact that the, 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 the Death Star, Brad Parscale's metaphor for this juggernaut, the Death Star basically blew itself up uh, when it comes to the financing of this campaign. And it, 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 it vastly underperformed and appears to have vastly underserved the the candidate himself, who was forced this week to fly all the way to California to continue to raise money. The Biden campaign has more money than it knows what to do with. And when you combine it with the Democratic outside groups, they can play almost anywhere. It's allowed them to reach down ballot. Uh, I agree with you, John. Money doesn't determine everything, but the the, the disparities in the airwaves are striking, and they're allowing the the Democrats at this stage to play basically anywhere they want and forcing Donald Trump and and the GOP to play defense in lots of places that he never imagined he'd have to worry about. I mean, I I went through uh, with uh, you know looking at some of the numbers in the states of the of the, the spending combined super PAC campaign and and, and party and it, and it is unbelievable in some of these places. I mean, in Michigan, it was more than three to one, almost four to one. Uh, Democrats outspending uh, Republicans, uh, pro uh, Biden ads uh, over over pro Trump ads in uh, in in Florida uh, two to one. Um, you know, I mean, that, that's not really where you want to be. But let, but let's let's talk about this this war on on Fauci um, and, and and a back and forth because I I think it is interesting. And Rick, you and I were just talking. Um, if we could fast, if we could rewind a little bit, you, you remember um, yeah. when I was, uh, you know, a, a week ago Sunday uh, was was anchoring this week, and I had requested and thought that I had an agreement from the White House to have Fauci come on to, as my guest. Do you remember this? Yeah. So this is fascinating to me. So this is you know, you know it was ten days ago, and the time moves slow in the in the area. This is only ten short days ago, <laughs> um, and yeah, you said on air. That um, that that Dr. Fauci was not allowed to come on um, come on the program. We had hoped to talk to Dr. Fauci about both the outbreak at the White House and across the country. He was more than willing to join us, but the White House wouldn't allow you to hear from the nation's leading expert on coronavirus. In fact, they wouldn't allow any of the medical experts on the president's own coronavirus task force to appear on this show. 
And uh, it, it it ended with a with a Twitter back and forth with the vice president's press secretary, who serves as kind of the the spokesperson or the, the the gatekeeper for the task force, because Mike Pence is the head of the task force, um, saying saying that that was not true. And you put that to bed with this. You go go read the tweets because you you want to you want a Twitter argument as cleanly as you ever can by by producing the receipts. You had the emails showing that you asked for not just after Fauci but any member of the task force. Um, Fauci was not allowed on, but one point that that Alyssa Farah and others were making is, well, he's going to be out lots of other places. And I don't know, John, I wonder if that had something to do with the fact that that, that Anthony Fauci was on 60 Minutes a, a week later and that Anthony Fauci, um, who knew that he was not allowed on, on on your show, would give a whole series of subsequent interviews that, yep. frankly, Donald Trump didn't love. I mean, they were suddenly pressured uh, to, 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 to prove that they were not muzzling him because I quite directly said they were muzzling him. And and he was suddenly doing a, a series of high-profile interviews, none more high-profile uh, than his interview uh, on, on 60 Minutes, where he said he, was, he wasn't surprised the president got infected, that he attended a super spreader event, referring to the Amy Coney Barrett nomination event in the Rose Garden. Um, he said he frankly didn't understand, uh, you know, the, the president's position on masks didn't really make any sense. Uh, but so that so so Fauci's statements provoked uh, quite a quite a torrent from the president of the United States. Uh, perhaps most importantly, this uh, this campaign conference call, and I, and I know this. Well, you, you guys may have heard this and been out there, but but some of the background is important. This was uh, the president giving essentially a pep talk uh, to the campaign staff. Uh, I came after the New York Times had had her front page story talking about uh, how many of the president's political advisors are, are you know, really just kind of uh, borderline depressed, thinking that uh, the campaign's not going well. They're you know worried about the direction, and he wanted to you know to kind of prove that this the campaign was 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 raring to go. You know, he arranged this conference call. And the, uh, the reason why we know about it is the campaign quietly let reporters covering the campaign know about the call. They gave reporters, many of them, uh, the, the dial-in instructions so that we would be able to listen and record the president. So this wasn't like some secret recording of the campaign call. The campaign wanted this out because they thought it was going to be a nice pep talk. Well, the pep talk turned into a broadside against uh, Dr. Fauci. And, and let me just, I want to do one somewhat extended clip uh, because I, 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 this is Monday. I, I just believe this is one of the most remarkable things that you could hear in the closing, in the closing weeks of, 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 a, uh, of a campaign, especially a campaign in the midst of a pandemic. Take a listen. People are tired of hearing Fauci and all these idiots, these, these people, these people that have gotten it wrong. Fauci's a nice guy. He's been here for 500 years. He called every one of them wrong. And he's like this wonderful guy, a wonderful sage telling us how. He said, do not wear face masks. That's a number of months ago. He said, do not close it up to China. Don't, I, I haven't lived for 15 things, this guy. And yet we keep him. Every time he goes on television, there's always a bomb. But there's a bigger bomb if you fire him. But Fauci's a disaster. I mean, this guy, if I listen to him, we have 500,000 deaths. I mean, Fauci's a disaster. The guy that is the acknowledged top expert on infectious diseases in the uh, federal government, in the country, really, 
Um, the guy who's been a prominent member of the president's own coronavirus task force is a disaster, is an idiot. Is I mean, it's it's really it's really something else. But driving this is this frustration from the president, not just in Fauci, but he's he is he's tired of this virus. He's tired of it. Listen to what he said at a campaign rally in Arizona this week. Your state is doing great. You have a great governor, as you know, and your state is doing great with a pandemic. Pandemic. They're getting tired of the pandemic, aren't they? Getting tired of the pandemic. You turn on CNN, that's all they cover. COVID, COVID, pandemic, COVID, COVID, COVID. You know why they're trying to talk everybody out of voting? People aren't buying it, CNN, you dumb bastards. They're not buying it. I mean, we're at well over 220,000 deaths. We have uh, uh, many states reaching record numbers of of new infections and also new hospitalizations. And the president would just like it to go away. I mean, he's been he's been talking an optimistic game. Let's get rid of this. One final one, Rick, was in Carson City, Nevada, uh, over the weekend, um, where he actually mocked Joe Biden um, for suggesting that he would listen to the scientists. Listen to this. He will surrender your future to the virus. He's going to lock down. This guy wants to lock down. He'll listen to the scientists. If I listened totally to the scientists, we would right now have a country that would be in a massive depression instead of, we're like a rocket ship. Take a look at the numbers. Yeah, take a rocket ship. Take a look at the numbers. I guess it depends which numbers you're looking at, Rick. Yeah, I, I, it does depend on that, and obviously, a lot of people are not uh, are, are are still unemployed. the The economy isn't where it needs to be. Schools are not open. People aren't living this in, in a way. I uh, look. I think it's been telling at times when when the president is now using as an attack line that Joe Biden would listen to the scientists. He's also using as an attack line that politics would be boring if Joe Biden is president. I think Joe Biden approves of both of those messages. He did gladly run his reelection campaign on exactly that. That I will get back to boringness, normalcy, and I will listen to the scientists and get beyond this. The country has been through such a, a disruptive period of time to everyone's lives, literally everyone's lives these last seven months. I think the president's right. People are sick of COVID. They're tired of it, but they want it to be over. And on this defining issue, the president just doesn't have credibility. Um, he His continued contradictions, only a week or so removed from his own return to the campaign trail, Given his own diagnosis, easy to forget. He was himself a COVID patient just a week and a half ago. It, it, it's all it, it's all startling, but it's also clarifying. And I think it sets up exactly the kind of race that it was probably going to be all along. Uh, the president isn't really you know, running from COVID as much as he's now hoping that the country's on the other side of it and can see beyond it. And that's just that's tough, given the reality of 2020 in America. And I'm going to head out uh, in a bit to, to Nashville to be there uh, in the debate, the last one, of course. We, we, we know what went down in, in Cleveland. Um, but the, the, the rule change announced by the, the commission is, uh, I think, been misunderstood by some. It's, it's not actually a mute button. Um, it's, 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 a, it's an automatic turning off of the microphone from the control room, Kristen Welker, my friend and colleague at NBC, who's the moderator, is not going to have a mute button. She's not going to be able to, you know, mute somebody out. But 
But you know, when the initial question is posed to Biden, for instance, Trump's microphone will be off for two minutes for that uninterrupted answer. When it goes to Trump, Biden's mic will be off for two minutes. But then as you remember, the way these go is the initial question is given to a candidate and then there's this 90 seconds of kind of, you know, follow on discussion and uh, both mics are going to be open. So there's plenty of opportunity for the kind of talking over each other and and whatnot. And also, by the way, just because your mic is off doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be quiet. So it'll be interesting to see <laughs> how how it goes. We just won't be able to hear so well the interjections if there are interjections. But, um, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 I imagine the president, I mean, who knows? Who knows? I, I, I think that... Uh, that there's a real sense within the Trump, you know, the Trump team, that this is the last real chance, the really, the really truly last real chance to change the trajectory of the race. But going into this, Rick, going into this, um, there is no debate prep. I mean, Biden's doing a heck of a lot of debate prep. He's been down for three days. I don't know that that's good. But uh, the, 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 the debate prep that uh, Chris Christie was a big part of and talked about, that's not happening this time from the from from the Trump side. He's going to go in there. He's going to go in like he always does, but in a more extreme version, you know, operating from his gut. And John, almost forty million Americans have voted. Forty million Americans. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And keep in mind that you know we don't know who they're voting for. Uh, I think it's easy to, to, to make extrapolations based on party registration or advantages and the like. People are engaged in this election. They are voting now. It is going to be a, well, certainly a record turnout election. Um, and it makes it harder and harder to turn the ship around. You know, I was talking to a Biden aide recently who said Donald Trump has been exactly the same candidate for his entire political career with one exception. And you know this, John. It was the last couple of weeks, last two weeks or so of the 2016 campaign where after Access Hollywood, he decided to be disciplined. And, and for the only and first time, he kept on a message. And the Biden campaign's fear has been that he would somehow find that discipline and that he would make the last couple of weeks a pure referendum on the economy and make it, make it a choice, frankly, between him and Joe Biden in, in a clarifying way. I don't see it happening. I, the debate is, I agree with you, the, the last best shot to do that. Uh, but that it does not seem like the play for Donald Trump. He continues to his calculation, and you know, there's some chance he's right. His calculation is that his understanding of of the American electorate, his base um, it plus, is enough to win this thing, and he is going to win or lose the way he has always been. All right, Rick. Let's take a quick break, and uh, we've got uh, HR McMaster ready to go. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by retired Army General H.R. McMaster, of course, President Trump's former national security advisor, uh, also the author of a new book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Uh, General, it's an honor to have you on Powerhouse Politics. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. So I, I want to ask you a, a, a big question picture uh, question. Uh, we, we've seen so many people uh, come, you know, leave the Trump White House and say incredibly scathing things about this president, about the way this president has behaved, about the decisions he has made, about his leadership style. You've been critical. You, you certainly haven't been anywhere near <laughs> the, the, the most critical. 
but I, I just have a, a big question. It's really more about your colleagues and the people you worked with than about you, although it could apply to you too. Why is it that we really haven't seen anybody resign in protest from this administration, given all the things that have been said about this president by people who worked for him and worked really closely with him? Why is it that for the most part, we heard all this stuff after they left and usually after these individuals were, were fired? Or forced out. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm just speculating, but maybe it's because he was elected president. You know, I mean, you know, I, I think for me, for me, like he, you know, he was the fifth commander in chief that I served. You know, I entered West Point when I was 17 years old. Uh, you know, I, I think everybody should vote. I just want to say that up front, but I chose not to vote while I was on active duty to keep that bold line in place. You know, between the military and, you know, and and. Um, and politics and, and partisan politics. You know, I followed the example of, of, of General George Marshall. So, I mean, I, for me, it was an easy decision to serve. And, you know, and I, I felt like I could make a difference. You know, I could serve the, the, the elected president and help him, you know, advance and protect American interests. Now, you know, of course, you know, in the Trump administration, as you mentioned, a number of people get used up in, that, in this in this vitriolic uh, you know, environment there and, and political environment. And, and I was at peace with that. Right. I mean, this was for me, this is my 34th year of service in the military. And I've considered it a privilege to do it. And and um, as, I, as I read about in, in battlegrounds, hey, you know, none of these problems that we're facing are going away while we're at each other's throats. So I think we all have to probably you know, we should probably focus on doing our part to bring our society back together. And to, and to try to build a better future for generations of Americans to come. Well, certainly, uh, particularly, I mean, in all categories, but particularly on the national security front, I mean, whatever is going on with the president, terrorists are still out there. China is still a rising power. Russia is still doing what they're doing. The Middle East is still a mess. But, but I, I wrote about you a bit in my book, um, Front Row at the Trump Show, and, and you – and, Which congratulations, and, by the way, I've I've got it. I've, I've I've read in it so far. I will read it more fully, John. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Well, I, I well I wrote and correct me if you know, this is your chance to tell me if I was wrong. But 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 you were one of those uh, senior advisors in the West Wing who uh, was willing to tell the president to his face uh, when you disagreed with something and make your case. Uh, but you also felt it was your duty uh, to, to to carry out the the wishes of the commander in chief. After all, as you just pointed out, he's the guy that got elected. But you worked side by side with uh, people: uh, John Kelly, uh, General Mattis, uh, Rex Tillerson, to name a few. Who, um, at least in my telling of it, and the way it's been kind of portrayed to me, uh, felt that. Uh, that th- th- their job was to try to basically protect the country from the president or protect the president in some cases from the president, uh, to protect the president's agenda from his uh, worst instincts. And, and, and you know, they would uh, f- basically l- hear him out and then quietly undermine some of the things that they disagreed with. Uh, that was decidedly not your approach. Um, how, how's history going to judge all of this? The people who served Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, John, I had this great gift, right? I, 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 you know, the army gave me the opportunity to study history. And I wrote a book about how and why Vietnam 
became an American war called Dereliction of Duty. Sure. And what, I, and, and this was about really all of the, all the pitfalls associated with national security decision-making uh, on the path to making Vietnam an American war. And so it was kind of surreal, the, you know, the day that I walked into the West Wing, the day after I'd been hired, and I didn't even live in Washington, right? So I didn't have like a lot of time to prepare. <laughs> so, but for me, I was walking into McGeorge Bundy's office, right? Who was the national security advisor during Lyndon Johnson's administration. And I was determined, hey, I, at least I'm going to avoid the same mistakes as McGeorge Bundy did. And, and the way that, that I structured our efforts within the National Security Council staff and for the president and across, across the NSC, which are the, you know, the, the, the principal's committee, the, the president's cabinet, essentially, uh, for, for uh, dealing with national security affairs and foreign policy, it was to, to present the president with multiple options, plural. In Vietnam, what happened is you know, people decided, hey, well, Lyndon Johnson, wants, you know, he wants a strategy for Vietnam that prioritizes his domestic objectives. So let's give that to him. Well, of course, you know, that, 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 that foreclosed on any kind of a discussion about the long-term costs and consequences of an American war in, in Vietnam. And so I saw it as my duty to tell the president what he doesn't want to hear, to give the president multiple options. And, and you know, I, was, I knew that you know, probably my shelf life was limited in that connection, you know, but I was at peace with that. There are three types of people, John, I think, and I've mentioned this before, you know, that I think serve in any administration. And the first are those who are determined to give the president multiple options, recognizing, as you stated, hey, this is the, 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 the man or woman who was elected, right? And, and, uh, and, and, and to then help assist with the sensible implementation of those decisions, and in this case, across departments and agencies with like-minded partners abroad and so forth. And then the second group of people, I think, are those who define themselves in the role of, uh, of advancing their own objectives, right? They're not there for the elected president's agenda. You know, they have their own agenda and, and, you know, on, on immigration or trade or whatever, whatever it is. And then the third group of people are there, <laughs> who are there to, uh, I think, are there to serve, you know, to serve really what they see as, as a purpose of, of saving the country, maybe the world, from the president. The danger with that second and third group is that you know, none of them were elected, and so they're actually undermining the Constitution of the United States, you know, because because sovereignty lies with the people. The people spoke in the election. And, of course, our founders were brilliant in, in, in connection with separation of powers and checks and balances on the executive that that that, are, that lie in in the legislature and in the court. Right. Not with not with some you know political appointee or civil servant who says, like the anonymous writer, you know, the anonymous op-ed writer, hey, look what a great job I did at foiling the elected president's agenda. But, but if, I, if I can just ask one follow-up on that, though, what, what do you do in a situation, and you can, you know, it's a matter of judgment whether we're at that point now, um, but, but what do you do in a situation if you are there serving a president who was duly elected but has gone bad? Uh, what, what you, uh, John, I can, I can only, I can, let me talk about my experience. You, you yeah. were there with me. Yeah. We saw each other quite frequently yeah, sure. in, in that, in that 13 months. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I did my best to serve the president and the country, right? I swore an oath at age 17 to the constitution of the United States, right? So I wasn't going to hold back. And you know what, John, I didn't care. I wasn't trying to keep my job. I wasn't trying to get a next job. So when I was done, I, I was done, but I, I concluded, you know, as a historian in particular, that the, the greatest disservice, not only to, to the country, but also to the president himself, would be if I held back, if I didn't tell him what he didn't want to hear. 
And so that's what I did for 13 months. And you know what, John, we got, I think we got some pretty good policy outcomes in that 13 months. I can't talk about what happened after, you know, but we affected the, the most significant shift in U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. And that's, that's a competitive approach to China rather than a, a policy of cooperation and engagement. You know, we had significant shifts on our approach to, to Russia, which, which, of course, is completely you know, uh, you know, disconnected from the president's public statements about Russia, which is frustrating and, and counterproductive. Um, but we, you know, we, I think we have a sound approach to Iran now, where before it was a, a flawed approach associated with the Iran nuclear deal as the, as the policy toward Iran. Uh, but you know, there have been disappointments you know, since I left on, on South Asia and on Afghanistan in particular. But I, I can only talk about when I was there, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think we ran a process, and I think I, you know, I, my, I fulfilled my duties in a way that produced decent foreign policy outcomes. I think if you, if you take that December 2017 national security strategy, and, 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 and if a new administration does come in on January 20th, I think they should just do a word search for America first, delete that, and then adopt it. I mean, it's not I mean, you know, <laughs> for me, for me, John, I don't think foreign policy should be partisan, right? I mean, tell me, you know, I mean, first of all, you know, when Al Qaeda attacked us and committed mass murder and, and, the, and the most devastating terrorist attack in history on September 11th, 2001, they didn't attack Democrats or Republicans. You know, they, they attacked Americans, right? And, and so I, I think I, what the reason I wrote Battlegrounds is because we should be able to discuss these issues and come together as Americans, right, to, to build this better future for our children and our grandchildren. General McMaster, I wanted to hone in a little bit on, on Russia, which you, you referenced, and you know, we're obviously 13 days before Election Day. And the, 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 the consensus view of the intelligence community, and I think most thinking people, is that the Russians are again trying to manipulate uh, the election. That this is a goal of, of Vladimir Putin. The president has been loath to admit that. And in fact, his campaign is continuing to, to spread information that you know we, we don't know what the origin was or what the means are, but it has a lot of the hallmarks of potential Russian disinformation with regard to Vice President Biden and, and, and his family. Put your historian's hat on. What concerns you about this final stretch to the election? Uh, is, there, is there damage that could be done that is serious is significant beyond the normal political rhetoric that you'd expect from one side or the other. Yes. Yes. So, so Rick, what, what, what we see with Russia and what I describe in battlegrounds is a strategy of disruption, disinformation and denial. And what Russia is doing is, I mean, I, frankly, I don't think they care who wins the election as long as we have doubt about the result. Right. And what they're trying to do is polarize us on issues of race. And, and, and you've I mean, you've reported on this. Right. I mean, really, you know, 80 percent of the bot traffic in, in, and troll traffic in 20, 2016 was on issues of race. Hey, they picked a winner there. Right. As well as gun control and immigration. So they want to polarize us pit us against each other and diminish our confidence, our confidence in who we are as a people and their co- our confidence in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. And, and the president and any leader should not give them a, a, a better opportunity than they deserve, should not be our own worst enemy. So when you have people, including the president, raise doubts about our, our electoral process, hey, what the president should be doing is taking credit. Between 2016 and 2018, we got exponentially better at protecting our election process, exponentially better at countering 
this this Russian campaign of disruption, disinformation, and, and, and denial. What we have new organizations with very capable people working on this. We change policies so we can you know so so that, so that we can we can actually you know be effective uh, in in cyberspace and and combine a you know, a good defense with a good offense. So I mean I it's it's perplexing to me why the president won't be just straight up uh, about the threat from Putin and Russia. You know, by the way, this is something that they've done since since the Soviet Union that's from the from the twenties. But now they're enabled. They're enabled by cyberspace. They're enabled by our own polarization and divisions on on race and and, and other issues. Our, our lack of confidence in our common identity as, as Americans, and they're enabled by social media as well. And by the way, I would should say by the mainstream media too, uh, because you know the, many of these stories that polarize us make it you know, they jump the gap essentially from the pseudo media and and social media into the mainstream media. Is that is that in your view dangerous? I mean, they, they, so much of of. Uh, I think you get at this in, in your book and in what you talk about your time under President Trump. We hear from a lot of people that work for him and a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill. You pay attention to his actions, not his words. You know, the, the, if, you, if you just look at the policies and you filter out the tweets, then you understand. But is this a case where the words do matter, where what the president is saying about the integrity well, I mean, of the election, yeah, what he's saying about the Russians matters? Well, this is an essential part of, of leading, right, is to if you if you lead a big organization you know, or a country, you have to send a simple, clear message. I think to you know to to to, to people so so that you can you can bring people together and you can galvanize appropriate action, uh, you know to to you know to take advantage of opportunities or to overcome obstacles and so forth. And and we you know, we we have major threats to to our society. And that's I, I write about this in Battlegrounds. I write about the need for us to improve our strategic competence, but also, but also to improve our confidence. That's was, that's, I think, you know, a, a fundamental aspect of what we all ought to take on. And this is why I think the media, the press, I mean, you've got to be part of the solution of bringing this back together. I mean, I think it's kind of crazy, right? It's crazy that, that if you, if you lean in one political direction, you watch one cable news station. If you lean in the other political direction, you watch one of two others, you know, that, that you know, that social media and the avarice of these companies you know, really has led them to pursue, you know, a, a business model based on advertising and clicks that gives you more and more extreme information so, so they can get more and more advertising dollars. This is a huge threat to our, to our society. And we all have to come together and restore our confidence. You know, in, in Battlegrounds, I quote Richard Rorty, who said that, 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 uh, that national pride, right, or pride is, you know, to nations, what self-respect is to individuals, right? A necessary ingredient for self-improvement. We have to restore our pride. We have to restore our confidence. A big part of that is we have to be confident in really common sources of authoritative information. So, so I think we have to we have to strengthen all of our institutions, right? The you know, the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judiciary. But heck, we have to we have to strengthen the fourth estate, which is which is you guys and, and our media. Well, um, we, 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 could, we could agree with that. One, one question, I know you have to, to go, but one other kind of maybe a big topic here, uh, I'd just like to hear your, your initial thoughts on how do you deal with disinformation? How do you deal, how, how, how should our big social media companies deal with disinformation? We saw uh, Twitter and Facebook, for instance, take steps to, uh, to prevent users from seeing um, that the New York Post story uh, on, on Hunter Biden. 
Uh, that was probably a clumsy effort there. But right, how do you right, do right. How, yeah. I mean, should, yeah. should our big social media companies uh, take on the role essentially of censoring out what is what they can deem to be disinformation? Or is that not a proper role? What, what do you I mean, how do you deal with it? <laughs> it's not a proper role. Yeah. And I'm speaking from Palo Alto, right? We, we do not want my neighbors here to be the arbiters yeah. of free speech, right? No way. So what I write about in, in Battlegrounds are really two solutions to this. One, hey, one Rick and, and John, is, is education. It's education, right? Education so that we can see disinformation and recognize it for what it is. And so the greatest strength of a nation is an educated pop, populace. That, that is the purpose of, of, of my book. Right? The purpose of Battlegrounds is to, to help the American people understand better the crucial challenges we face. The book was a continuation of my own self-education on these issues. And on the issue of, of disinformation in particular, it's important for us to have authoritative sources of information. I write about in the book a, a, you know, a startup here in, in Palo Alto called Soap AI. And what the, basically they do is they go to authoritative sources of information across the political spectrum, and they curate material and, 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 uh, and essays and, and reporting uh, that that is you know that, that that is relevant to a particular issue. So if you're interested in you know in in the you know the the Biden emails, whatever you're interested in, you can click on that, and then you get a range of views you know from think tanks and and investigative journalists and 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 you know and it means mainstream media and so forth. I think that's a way to do it. So instead of censoring all the bad stuff, we should take down malicious enemy activity on the internet. But we should not take down people's opinions. It is our freedom of speech. It is our ability to have a say in how we're governed by voting. That, that, that is our greatest strength. You know, one of the chapters in Battlegrounds is, is, is on China. And the, the title of the, of the chapter is Turning Weakness into Strength. Turning what our adversaries perceive as our weakness, weaknesses into our greatest strength. And we can do that, I think, through education, as I mentioned and and you know we, we have to really we have to rely heavily on the press. What I'm concerned about, yes, I, mean, I think you've seen this, right? Is we are so polarized that I think I think that in, journalism has suffered as well, right? Journalism has gotten sucked into into this vitriolic partisan discourse and is subjected, like we all are, to these centripetal forces that are tearing us apart, right? We have to all do our part. To, to, to put a break on those centripetal forces and bring all Americans back together and restore our confidence in, in, in who we are and restore our confidence in, in our democratic principles and institutions and, and processes. You know, we've, we've been here before, as, as you well know, as a student of history, uh, when uh, in, in the early days of our republic, uh, the, the, the press turned into warring factions. You had Federalist newspapers and Republican newspapers. Absolutely. And, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, and, and here we are now. I mean, I, I, yeah. I for one, listeners of the podcast know I, I, I tell uh, conservatives, uh, you know, go and, and, and pull up a chair and listen to, to MSNBC in primetime for a little while. I, I tell Liberals and Democrats tune in to, uh, to 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 Fox and primetime as well. Just get a sense of what the other side is is what universe they're living in right. because we're living in two different universes. Yeah, yeah, but we, yeah, we are, we are, we are. But but no, hey, I would just like to say though. But remember the debates in that period of time. I mean, read the Federalist Papers, but then read the Anti-Federalist Papers. These were meaningful, yep. thoughtful debates, and we're we're missing that substance these days. I mean, I you know I I think that our founders were right. Because they feared these factions, 
And, and we, we all have the responsibility mm-hmm. to, to, to correct this. You're right. It's not unprecedented. As, a, as an American historian, I, you know, we never say anything is unprecedented. Right. And so I have confidence. I have confidence in our country. We're, we're going to get through this and we're going to emerge stronger. And, and thanks to both of you for, you know, for, for, for having a forum in which you can have long format discussions and, and, and explore these issues in some depth and, and, um, I appreciate you guys, and thanks for the opportunity to be with you. Well, I hope we can I hope we can talk to you again soon. Keep up the conversation. One last final quick one: Are you going to vote? You said you, as an active duty military officer, you did not vote. So is that going to change now? I did. I voted. I I voted for the first time in my, in my life. Yes, yes, I did. Wow, <laughs> is that is that a secret ballot, or have you revealed who you voted for? Again, I again, I think everybody should vote. The reason I didn't. Yep. Is because I think it's so important to keep this bold line. Is again go back go back to our founders, right? George Washington's grandparents fled the English Civil War, right? And so our founders had in mind the the, the very the, the, the vital importance of keeping this bold line between the military and partisan politics, and that's that's why. But but I, but of course I, I I voted now, and we'll continue to vote, and we'll we'll never tell anyone ever how I voted. Okay, well, there you go. That was the answer to my question. General General H.R. McMaster, thank you very much. The, the book, again, is Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. An honor to talk to you, sir. Thank you. Hey, the honor's mine. Thanks, you guys. Take care. Thank you, General. All right, Rick, that is all the time we have because we've got to get down in Nashville. We've got a presidential debate, I think, uh, the final one. Uh, yeah, yeah, the final it's one. Happening. It, it's, um, happening. it's happening. I, I mean, it it's is. Happening. I, you know, I'll actually believe it when I see them both on the stage, but, <laughs> but it's, it's apparently happening. Um, and we will, I, you know, hopefully we could do some kind of an emergency podcast uh, post-debate. But we will be back sooner than you think. Thank you to Avery Miller, Trevor Hastings, and the entire Powerhouse Politics team. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.